Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Today, it is Sunday, July 19th of 2015, and today our guest is Deborah Mash of the University of Miami. She's an Ibogaine researcher. We're going to bring her on in just a minute. First, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Deborah Mash, is with us. I'm going to bring her on right now. Deborah, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for coming. Tell us a little bit about Ibogaine. How long has this been around? Uh, when was it first thought to be, you know, have some effect on addiction? Well, Ibogaine's been around and in the uh, pharmacology literature for over 100 years. And it actually uh, goes back to some of the early drug discovery studies that were conducted by investigators in Europe uh, looking for novel medications to treat a variety of disorders. And as you may know, before the uh, development of the pharmaceutical industry, most of our medicines came from Mother Nature. They came from plants. And Ibogaine is one of a number of alkaloids found in the root of a plant that grows in western equatorial Africa called Tabernanthi Iboga. And Ibogaine is one of the, the dominant or predominant um, alkaloids, that compounds that is found in the root. And this was studied in Europe in uh, university centers in both Germany and France for many, many years and actually made its way into the pharmaceutical industry. And Ibogaine itself was marketed in France in low doses under the trade name Lamborghini for almost 30 years. But it was not until um, Howard Lutzoff, himself a heroin addict, who took a dose of Ibogaine to get high and then discovered shortly thereafter that he was completely detoxed off of his heroin addiction and had no craving or desire to use, that the seminal discovery that Ibogaine may be beneficial for addictions was actually made. And this discovery by Howard Lutzoff was repeated with some of his friends who abused opiates and some of them abused uh, cocaine, were cocaine addicts, and they too reported a similar abrupt cessation in the desire to use drugs. Mm-hmm. That observation sort of stayed out there and remained kind of in the underground until Howard Lutzoff uh, decided to to take it forward and to try to get various people in the medical and the academic fields interested in Ibogaine. And that's when I became aware of Ibogaine. I myself have been studying drug and alcohol addiction for a number of decades and became aware that that there was something that could be potentially very beneficial uh, from the use of Ibogaine. Mm-hmm. Now, is the uh, iboga plant, is that used in uh, religious rituals in Africa? It is. Uh, there are different um, groups in Africa, primarily the the Bwiti religion, 
that Ibogaine is an active sacrament, and they take it in a high dose once in a lifetime, and then at other times as part of their religious practice, they use it in, in much lower doses. But this is, I called it back many years ago, a kind of chemical bar mitzvah, where it, it could give people insight into their into not only their behaviors, but kind of their relationship with their community and with the universe. And of course, that's why it's used as, as a religious sacrament by the Buides, because it does have, it puts people into a kind of a waking dream state where they can get some insight into uh, who they are and, and, and what their relationship is to their, to their tribe in this case and to, and to uh, for lack of a better word, to their, their knowledge and understanding of, of God or, or a divine presence in the universe. And when we took, when I first learned about this, I thought, you know, this was really a kind of a far out idea and I, I didn't really um, understand how um, a, a potential medication that could give you some visual insight could have efficacy for, for blocking uh, the severe signs of an opiate withdrawal. And so I, I was very um, skeptical that this would have any real benefit and uh, thought that this was just another, you know, odd idea that was coming down the, coming down the pipeline. So what I did at the invitation of Howard Lutzoff, I actually boarded a plane and went to Amsterdam to see this with my own eyes. And at that point, Howard Lutzoff and an underground railroad of addicts helping addicts called uh, the Dutch Addict Self-Help Movement, or DASH, and the International Coalition of Addict Self-Help were shuttling addicts across the ocean from the United States to the Netherlands, and I left my laboratories at the University of Miami and boarded an airplane with a colleague of mine, a medical doctor, and we went over there to see this with our own eyes, and that was really the um, the beginning of a very long journey for me, but suffice it to say that I saw with my own eyes uh, three young men who were treated with Ibogaine, one who was a very severe opiate addict who had been on methadone maintenance and uh, also abusing benzodiazepines and using some cocaine, chipping on the side on occasion. And he was really a, he was a lovely young man who had struggled his entire life from addiction. I saw another young man who was a, a young Jewish man whose father was a rabbi who was addicted to freebase cocaine. And I saw a third young man who was a very talented uh, musician who was also a heroin addict. And I saw all three of these young men take a single dose of Ibogaine. And within 24 to 36 hours after the administration of the drug, get out of the bed and have no withdrawal signs or cravings or desire to use the drug. And this to me was a phenomenon that had to be studied. I knew that there was something to this and that it needed to be brought back into accredited academic and scientific laboratories because there was something very fundamental about the way this drug worked with the brain that allowed this very rapid reset. And I had some ideas at the time, and in fact, that's what led to the discovery of the active metabolite of Ibogaine 
called Noribogaine. So I brought this information back to the U.S., shared it with a number of colleagues and collaborators, and I also took it to the U.S. FDA. The United States Food and Drug Administration convened a panel, and we brought this information uh, to them and also to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And the FDA was very responsive and very helpful, and actually they allowed us and gave us the first permission to take Ibogaine forward and to test it in human subjects. But the problem was at that time and continues to be today that it's impossible to fund uh, these types of studies. You may know that to get a medication approved through the FDA, they, they estimate it's anywhere from $300 million to $700 million to bring mm-hmm. a drug all the way through all of the stages of, of drug discovery and development. So this was a, mm-hmm. a really a, a big barrier to entry for this molecule. And Howard Lutzoff held the patents. Uh, Howard filed five patents, one for uh, opiates, one for psychostimulants, cocaine and methamphetamine, nicotine, alcohol, and then finally polydrug dependency. So he was the one who had the the kind of the lock on on the Ibogaine field. And he himself was unable to uh, generate any real revenues to, to take this forward in a commercial, in a commercial way. Mm-hmm. I have one question. I was curious uh, when you said you gave them Ibogaine. It, it was a pharmaceutically purified form, or was it the raw plant itself? Or uh, what, what did the people get? Yes, no, the, 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 the drug that Howard Lutzoff worked with and ultimately the drug product that we brought into the uh, clinic here uh, for testing at the University of Miami, and then again that product that we used later on was purified Ibogaine hydrochloride. And originally Lutzoff had worked with a uh, Belgium uh, company that was uh, very expert in natural uh, plant products. And so it's, it was a, um, an, an isolation scheme that allowed a pharmaceutical preparation that was suitable for human use to be prepared. You know, sometimes people buy Ibogaine and they do this despite the fact that it's illegal in the U.S. and elsewhere over the Internet. And your listeners need to know that that's a very dangerous proposition because, one, you don't know what you're getting. Uh, there can be contaminants. That without a certificate of analysis and a, and a real genuine pharmaceutical preparation of the drug, you could you really need to be a buyer beware because you could end up getting something that could hurt you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're going to go into more detail about that in a bit. Uh, first, I want to ask you. I believe that you were running some trials on ibogaine several years ago. I read something about that. Uh, what whatever happened with that? So we initiated um, the studies here at the University of Miami, and they were what are called uh, FDA Phase One studies. And basically, an FDA Phase One study allows you to learn about the dose and the safety of the drug. You know, Lutzoff and his collaborators were not medical doctors. They were not scientists. They had no training whatsoever. And so they uh, came up with an idea about a dose range for Ibogaine, but this was really not based on any kind of fact. So when we started 
we had to kind of go from ground zero here. And also we had to develop a means to measure Ibogaine and its active metabolite in the blood so that we could report back to the FDA on dose and, and value, um, give it a given dose and what would be the uh, corresponding blood level of Ibogaine or the metabolite, and then what were the safety uh, issues, if any, that were uh, shown in the clinic. And so we began that study in the U.S., and originally, uh, because the FDA had some concerns about safety, they required that we initiate the trials in Ibogaine veterans. In other words, people that had already taken Ibogaine outside the U.S. with Howard Lutzoff. And that was really difficult for us because we had to try to find these people and get them to volunteer for the trials. I was successful um, shortly thereafter having obtained more information about the safety from uh, studies that were being done or uses of Ibogaine that were occurring outside the U.S. and provided more information back to the FDA. And they allowed us to go forward in um, and Ibogaine-naive veterans, but people that were uh, addicted at the time to cocaine. Since I was in Miami, Miami had a very uh, large cocaine epidemic. We were on the front end loading, of, in fact, of the cocaine epidemic because of our close proximity to the Caribbean and the, the transshipment of uh, drugs from South America into the United States. Much of it occurred through South Florida, and we were we were really under attack with with the uh, cocaine in our community, and we were seeing individuals, you know, a big increase in cocaine-related emergencies, cocaine-related violence, crack cocaine-exposed babies, um, and you name it. I mean, it was it was a wild time here in South Florida with the cocaine cowboys. So, the FDA. I brought the original protocol uh, to the FDA for use in cocaine addiction. And they agreed to allow us to go forward with that, and we started those trials. But again, the issue here was to get the money. So I wrote several grants to the uh, National Institute on Drug Abuse requesting funding for this, but I was unable to get um, the funds approved so that we could continue. At the same time, mm -hmm. Howard Lutzoff was unable to pay for any of the trials, so um, things became quite difficult. At that point, I um, made a decision to do something a little bit bold, and I went offshore and I established uh, a clinic in the Caribbean island of St. Kitts in the West Indies. The prime minister of that island uh, was uh, Dr. Denzel Douglas, and Dr. Douglas, as you can imagine, a medical doctor himself, uh, was very respectful of what we were trying to do, and I was extremely fortunate because I had the collaboration of, of Dr. Frank Irvin, who is, was a biological psychiatrist. He recently passed away about six weeks ago, a great loss to all of us um, with the passing of Dr. Irvin. But Dr. Irvin um, was very kind and agreed to work with us and to serve as the clinical director of our institute. And we set up uh, this program in St. Kitts and invited people to come in and to take Ibogaine under full medical monitor to sign an informed consent, and we asked them to participate in the medical research. So these were individuals who elected to take Ibogaine. Uh, it was a fee-for-service. We had a sliding scale. Some people could afford to pay, others couldn't, and so we 
we had sort of a sliding scale, but we continued our research there and provided that information uh, to the U.S. FDA. I met with them again, shared the data with also the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And at the end of all of that, I had to uh, turn a corner and make a decision about where I wanted to go with this. And I made the decision to try to advance the active metabolite of Ibogaine, or what is called Noribogaine. And at that time, it was uh, many years had gone by, almost a decade plus of research, and I started uh, with a, with a um, co-founder by the name of Steve Gorlin, uh, the, uh, a company called Demerex, which was, our mission was to advance the study of noribogaine for the treatment of addiction. And we were focused now on opiate abuse and dependence because my work down in the Caribbean suggested, again, what I had already seen from Howard Lutzoff was this stunning efficacy of Ibogaine for allowing people to detox off of opiates. In fact, what we saw is that it was not only an effective but a very gentle detox, and it really helped people to transition to sobriety. We also had uh, data on cocaine-dependent individuals, and also some uh, information, but not as much, on individuals who had suffered uh, from alcohol abuse disorder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But these were not uh, controlled trials, were they? You didn't have a control group to compare to and get a p-value, did you? Well, you can't. I mean, you think about it. If you're giving Ibogaine, how are you going to control it? Because yeah. immediately when Ibogaine becomes uh, active in the bloodstream, you know that somebody's under the influence of Ibogaine. So if you were going to do these types of studies, what I ultimately what you would want to do would be a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, when you look at opiate with, withdrawals, we, we conducted open, what are called open, um, open trial design where we had... Um, mm-hmm observational data yeah and we had observational data that was um compiled by you know medical doctors and and licensed therapists and psychologists who worked with us and we collected a you know a wealth of uh clinical and psychiatric information but the bottom line is if you for example you might say well you could double blind it with something like psilocybin uh, because that's psychoactive, it's you know can induce a, a kind of a state, albeit very different than ibogaine. But even if you did that, you know you you're, you know that that's not going to block opiate withdrawals. And we know mm-hmm. that you know these types of molecules have been used by people that have suffered from addiction, and it doesn't break the cycle of addiction the way ibogaine does. So you know we were kind mm-hmm. of in a cat. 22. If you look at the the molecules, you know, there's the drug, the pharmaceutical companies have not put medications in the pipeline of development for the treatment of addiction. What do we have? We have methadone, which has, you know, been around for a very long time, which is a, a molecule that people can transition off of heroin or prescription drugs and go on to methadone, but it, but then it's difficult to transition off of methadone. So if someone wants to, you know, stop using methadone, the ability to taper down and transition off for many individuals is very difficult. 
Methadone is a very helpful molecule, and many people have benefited from the use of methadone, but if you want to transition to sobriety, it's difficult. Then mm -hmm. NIDA and the collaborators and the pharmaceutical companies advanced Suboxone or buprenorphine, Subutex. This drug was originally um, thought to be useful as a, a means of tapering, again, to detox, but in fact, what we have now is office-based suboxone therapy, so people are transitioning from their prescription opiates or from heroin onto suboxone, and then it's, for many of them, it's even more difficult to transition off than it was from methadone. And some people mm -hmm. have very long-lasting adverse reactions when they try to taper off of Suboxone. So the experience, I believe, with Suboxone has been that this is just another substitution therapy, and for many, it becomes even more difficult in opiate dependency to break. Nicotine, mm -hmm. we have substitution therapy for nicotine, the nicotine patch. We have a pharmaceutical, Shantex, for nicotine. For alcohol, we have, uh, you know, naltrexone, um, which mm -hmm. does seem to help somewhat for alcoholism. And, and there was another molecule, which I'm forgetting now, which didn't show much efficacy Temporal. for the treatment. What? Campril, the acamprosate? Acamprosate, Campril, thank you. Acamprosate, which was developed in Europe and brought into the United States and I don't think has really met the mark in terms of really helping uh, severe alcoholics in maintaining sobriety. So that has been uh, less than stunning in terms of its efficacy. There are no other drugs. Nothing um, has made it down the pipeline. Are you familiar with uh, the research uh, in the uh, 1960s in Saskatchewan, the LSD research they did with alcohol dependence? I am. I am, and uh, I am very familiar with that, actually. And um, it's unfortunate that that did not go further because I because LSD, LSD therapy is very safe. And, you know, it, it's... I've I've written about this, and um, you know, the, we we really addiction is addiction with a capital A is is a really complicated um, classification of of a disorder that we know is is a compulsive use disorder. So, but if you look at why do people become addicted? Why, why is it that some people can drink and never get addicted? Why is it some people can do a few lines of Coke and put it, push it away? Why is it some people try opiates and hate them? Well, we know that it has a lot to do with the underlying neurochemistry in our brain. So if you never get exposed to a drug or alcohol, you might be at risk for a substance use disorder, but you'll never become addicted. So it's this interplay between our own biology and the environment that we find ourselves. But mm -hmm. no doubt, many people who become addicted to drugs or alcohol are self-medicating, whether they're self-medicating underlying depression, anxiety disorders, phobias, traumas from childhood, traumas in adult life. You know, there are all these different factors that can kind of converge to put people at risk for drug and alcohol dependency. And so it really becomes a complicated uh, disorder that requires 
a multifaceted approach to keep people sober long term. Um, I, I believe in the harm reduction model. I think that we need to help people uh, to deal with the problems in their life. I think going to meetings, I think the 12-step movement is, um, is in a very important movement, and I, and I honor the work that they do in the rooms. I think it's spectacular, and I know, I know firsthand that it has helped many, many people. I know firsthand that Ibogaine helped and has helped and continues to help many, many people, despite the fact that I was not successful in advancing this all the way in the United States. Many people will elect to get Ibogaine treatment, and they go into various settings outside the United States, and it's one of the greatest disappointments for me in this lifetime that I wasn't able to bring it into medical use in the U.S. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to ask you another question, uh, and about the mechanism of ibogaine, because we were just mentioning uh, LSD. Ibogaine also has hallucinogenic properties. So, is the mechanism have to do with the hallucinogenic properties, or is it some other aspect of ibogaine? How much do we know about this? What don't we know? So, I'm going to tell you straight out that. You know, this is a very, your question is very well stated, and it's one that I've been asked literally hundreds and hundreds of times. And we asked it ourselves in our own clinical uh, setting. And, you know, I, if, if hallucinations, if a hallucinogen was the be-all, end-all for addiction, then the other hallucinogens, psilocybin, ayahuasca, MDMA, what else, uh, LSD, et cetera, probably would have, you know, made its way and we would know a lot more about that mechanism of action. That we don't suggest to me that it's not the visualizations that's the primary mechanism of the efficacy. What mm-hmm. Ibogaine does in the brain is that it has an effect on multiple neurotransmitter systems in the brain, including dopamine, the neurotransmitter dopamine, and the opiate system in the brain. And it also gets converted in the liver to an active metabolite that has a very discrete pharmacology. The metabolite of Ibogaine you can measure it in the blood out almost four weeks after you take an ibogaine dose. We've detected it, in fact, in the urine uh, out at four weeks. So we know that ibogaine, which is very lipophilic, it can depot in fat, and then it can leach out of the fat, recirculate in the blood, and can have an effect that lasts long-term. So it's a very long-lasting metabolite, and I believe as I have for for a long time, that the efficacy resides in that active metabolite. Now, having said that, what about, uh, what's unique about Ibogaine compared to other hallucinogens? Well, this is not an LSD trip. And how do I know that? Well, I've never taken Ibogaine, uh, nor did any of my staff, but we certainly 
conducted structured interviews with hundreds of, of patients who took Ibogaine in our clinical setting. And many of them had done hallucinogens, all you name them, all of them, LSD, psilocybin, ecstasy, whatever. And we asked them, tell us, is this like LSD? What is this like? And the, the consensus from those structured clinical interviews was that Ibogaine puts, put them into what I would call a waking dream state where it almost was uh, like a life review, but a very lucid dream. And they were, they were cognizant that they were under the influence of something, but it was almost like watching a video. And for some of them, the images and the information, the content of this had some psychological importance. In other words, they were actually able to kind of come to grips with some of their demons. They were able to understand some of the bad behavior and where it led them. They felt remorse for the people that they hurt. They felt, um, you know, a sense of almost completing of what they described to me as, a, I believe it's the fourth step of, of completing a, a, a moral inventory of, of where drugs and alcohol led them in the past. And they, and for some of them, not all of them, but for many of them, they felt a purification and a cleansing and a connection to a higher power. Now, these experiences were used in our clinical setting by our therapists. And so we actually encouraged uh, this release of content and information in a way to for, to kind of forge an aftercare plan that would work because you recognize that there is no cure for drug and alcohol dependency there's no cure you're simply putting it what into remission and each day that you maintain sobriety from drugs and alcohol you're one step further on the path to long-term sobriety. But, you're all, but you will be at risk for relapse, and, and we know this because it is a chronic relapsing disorder. And many people who maintain sobriety for 5, 10 years can be put into a stressful situation, can have the loss of a loved one or have something horrible happen in their life, and they are at extreme risk for relapse. This probably has a lot to do with the the way that the brain has neuroadapted to drugs and alcohol and how drugs and alcohol affect the epigenetic mechanisms of the brain such that you've rewired critical brain circuits, which then can put you at risk further and farther down the road, even with sustained sobriety. So, you know, we look at this as, as researchers and clinicians in a way to understand that people who are struggling with addiction to drugs and alcohol need to work every day towards maintaining that fragile level of sobriety. And that's why the rooms are important and keeping, you know, keeping close to your, your doctor or if you suffer from depression to make sure that you're compliant with your medication. All these things, all these things are important. If you pray, pray. You know, ask God to grant you you know, the serenity to maintain your sobriety. So each of these things are tools in the toolbox because they help you to engage the frontal lobe. And when you're able to engage the frontal lobe, that keeps you away from the limbic risk, which will be the triggers to relapse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
I don't want to sidetrack too much. I just have to say the 12-step programs were always a trigger for me to drink. They always drove me to drink. It's not, it's not the right answer for everybody. But I don't want to go off on a big sidetrack on that. I do want to ask you, um, Stanley Glick is uh, now looking at something called 18MC, which apparently does not have the hallucinogenic properties. Uh, have you heard about this, and what do you think about it? Yeah, Stan's molecule 18MC, or uh, methoxycoronardine, is an ibogaine congener. It means it's a molecule that may be kind of a one-off of ibogaine. Uh, Nor ibogaine, which is the molecule that I took into the company, is also not a hallucinogen. So neither of these molecules will have the, the uh, visualizations that occur when you take a high dose of ibogaine. You know, if you take a low dose of ibogaine, all of the ibogaine gets converted to noribogaine, and and those people don't report any visualizations or changes in their consciousness. So um, I can't comment on where Stan uh, Glick's molecule is. I know that he licensed uh, the intellectual property to a company, and I believe that they were pursuing clinical trials in the same way that we were pursuing clinical trials for noribogaine. But I haven't heard anything recently about where they are with that molecule or if they've um, been successful in terms of advancing the molecule in terms of safety. We have Stan Glick scheduled for a couple weeks from today, so we'll see where he's at with that. Um, One other thing that's really important I want to ask about, and that is how safe is Ibogaine? We've heard uh, reports of people's heart stopping when they were taking Ibogaine. There are reports of neurotoxicity. Is it safe? It's a very important question um, and and one that needs to be uh, carefully considered. Ibogaine... um, was in our studies, we demonstrated safety of Ibogaine. But we also were working in a very um, controlled dose range and well below the doses that Howard Lutzoff was using in his uh, work with Ibogaine. And you recall that Howard Lutzoff actually had a death from Ibogaine. Um, and that death was due to an, an accidental overdose of Ibogaine in his um, work in Amsterdam, and that's ultimately what shut him down from pursuing um, work there. But we we never had an adverse event, but we know that there have been reports of adverse events with Ibogaine uh, in in many of the so-called underground clinics that opened up in the years after the original work that was done by my group. And people who were desperate to get Ibogaine treatments, of course, will go into all kinds of settings. And they may take Ibogaine without a medical doctor present. Some people took uh, Ibogaine themselves in hotel rooms. And I continue to get calls from family members uh, telling me that, uh, you know, bad things happen when people take Ibogaine in unsafe settings. The other thing to remember is that Ibogaine um, is highly metabolized, and there are fast, slow, and intermediate metabolizers. So you can get yourself into a toxic blood level very easily, especially if you combine Ibogaine with other drugs or pharmaceuticals. So if you've been on certain pharmaceutical medications and then you take a dose of Ibogaine, you can get an adverse drug interaction that could turn lethal. 
also ibogaine um, has very uh, profound effects on the heart and on blood pressure and so again addicts who come in who have been hitting the drugs hard uh, and they're not in a medical setting and they're not properly evaluated by a competent clinician um, may have a heart disease that hasn't been diagnosed or may have liver problems or may have blood pressure issues and they can be at risk for a cardiac event that can turn lethal. And then finally, there is some evidence that Ibogaine itself can act on a certain channel in the heart that can predispose to a cardiac arrhythmia. There are this channel has been described for other medications that are in clinical use and the FDA and doctors are well uh, know about this. They're they're very well trained in this. But again, if you've got ibogaine being given by individuals who are not medically trained, you're at risk. And so I have cautioned um, many people in the past, and I've been very vocal about this, that you don't take ibogaine in an unsafe setting. You must be evaluated by a competent clinician, and you must be under medical monitor when you take the drug for your safety. And, and plus, everyone deserves the opportunity to have a detox performed in a safe medical environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems that there are countless uh, people, companies uh, currently springing up uh, all over the Internet that are saying, you know, we can give you the Ibogaine detox. Um, and it's, so one, it, it's wonderful. It's safe because it's a plant, because it's herbal, you know, I was born on a farm. I know about plants. They're not all safe. Some of them are very dangerous and will kill you dead. Uh, you know, being a plant doesn't necessarily make something safe. Um, there are I, many, you, know, you make a great, no, you make a great point. There are many plant toxins, and just because it comes from a plant does not mean it's safe at all. And, in fact, this one has a, a very narrow therapeutic to toxic window, and you sure don't take a crude plant extract of Ibogaine. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there's any of these uh, websites on Ibogaine that promise the cure. I don't know that I trust any of them. I would have some of them ask me to link to them, and I haven't linked to any because I don't know that there are any that I would trust. Uh, what do you think of this? Well, I can't comment on most of them because I haven't site visited them or, or you know, checked the credentials of their staff. The, there is one group that I refer patients to, and I had a relative who needed treatment, and when I needed to send someone in my, in my own extended family for a detox from opiates, um, I sent them uh, to Dr. Alberto Sola at Clear Sky in Cancun. And the reason I did that is because, uh, one, Dr. Sola trained with me. He was in residence with us in St. Kitts and worked with us for over a year, um, he would come down when we were doing the Ibogaine detoxes and he would participated with us in residence. So he learned from us how to safely administer Ibogaine. Uh, he is a, a licensed emergency room physician who has also obtained training in addiction medicine. So he has participated in the American Society of Addiction Medicine and um, has worked and done uh, over, I think, 1,200 Ibogaine treatments over the years 
and maybe even more than that number now, actually. And he um, is someone who who I refer patients to and that I trust. And I, I maintain some um, oversight of his activities and, uh, you know, can provide some statements about what he does there in Cancun. Um, other programs um, that I've heard about in different places, and I won't name them, um, have... I know for a fact have lied to uh, patients saying that they have medical staff on site and they don't, or that they, uh, you know, have particular training and they don't. And many of them have had adverse events. And so you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, this is something that if you're going to elect to leave the country to go for Ibogaine therapy, you must inquire about the credentials of the individuals that are giving that are giving this treatment, this is uh, not a simple uh, drug to dose. And as I s- stated before on your show, it's extremely important to have a proper medical evaluation to make sure that you're safe. That it that ibogaine will be safe for you. You know, when we uh, worked with with patients down in the Caribbean in, in uh, St. Kitts. Uh, we had people evaluated stateside, and then we evaluated them again in, in, when they were at the clinic. And if we thought for any reason they were not a good candidate for Ibogaine, we would help them, but we would send them home, and we we refunded their money in total because, you know, we have an ethical and a moral responsibility to to take care of people and to make sure that that they will not be harmed. Uh, by an unapproved uh, treatment for addiction. Ibogaine has never completed clinical trials anywhere in the world. Uh, There was some work that was done in New Zealand, and New Zealand uh, did put Ibogaine and the active metabolite nor Ibogaine on their formulary. Uh, And so the the New Zealand uh, actually had Ibogaine, government-sanctioned Ibogaine, uh, that was being used there, but they too had um, a, a setting where someone was using Ibogaine in an unsafe way, and they had an accidental death. So Howard Lutzoff had an accidental death in, in the Netherlands. Reports from all around the world that unsafe Ibogaine practices had le- have, have led to emergencies and death. So if you're going to elect for Ibogaine, uh, treatment, you have to be 100% certain that you've done your homework and that you've spoken to the people that are providing the treatment and that you have confidence that you're going into a safe setting. Well, thank you very much, Deborah Mesh. That clear, clarifies so many things that I have been wondering about and I have been wanting to be able to answer people's questions when they ask me. So I'd love to thank you for being the guest on our show today. I I appreciate the invitation and thank you, and uh, I wish you all the best and continued success to helping to uh, educate the public about these important topics. Thank you. Okay, everyone, we'll see you all next week, and um, have a good time till then. Night.